You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Dr. Kenneth Zucker is a registered clinical psychologist in Ontario. He received his PhD at the University of Toronto in developmental psychology in 1982. He's a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto, and he's in private practice. He was the chair of the 2013 DSM-5 Working Group on Sexual and Gender Identity Disorders. He's a past president of the International Academy of Sex Research and has been the editor of Archives of Sexual Behavior since 2002. Since 1976, Dr. Zucker has worked clinically with children and adolescents with gender dysphoria and with their families. His research spans a variety of areas, including epidemiology, diagnosis and assessment, associated mental health challenges, causal mechanisms, and long-term follow-up. In our discussion, Ken describes the early years of working with childhood gender issues starting in the 1970s. We talk about all the changes he has seen in the kinds of children, families, and therapists in this field. While politics has always been present in the world of gender identity treatment, This really came to a head for Ken when he was fired from his position at the CAM Hospital in Toronto in 2015 after activists made some wild accusations and hospital administrators became fearful for their positions. After a three-year legal battle, he was finally vindicated and compensated. Even with his decades of leadership in the field, Zucker was not protected from this early cancel culture manifestation. So we talk about what his story means for individuals in the practice and the field more broadly. Here's our conversation with Dr. Ken Zucker. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. We have a very eminent guest today, uh, Dr. Ken Zucker. And I know that ever since I've started um, um, absorbing myself in the world of gender, every single study, Ken Zucker's name comes up. It's almost ubiquitous. And he, 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 it's, it's, it's very important for me and for you, I presume, Sasha, that we have this hour with Ken to kind of discuss the arc of gender. Because, you know, when somebody's been 40 years working at a top level in a field, that's when we can really, we can really kind of, you're standing on the shoulders of giants in that sort of context. And that's where we can really learn. And so I'm very excited to welcome you, Ken. Good morning. Good morning. We're so glad you're here. And as Stella said, I mean, you have 40 years plus experience working in this field. And I'm wondering where we should start. Um, there's a lot we want to cover. And you've I think seen this is a lot year of... 47, by the way. Year 47. No way. Wow. We should have you on at year 50 again, just to oh, 40, do a little celebration. 46. 46. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, can you kind of just give us an overview of like maybe what got you interested in this field and and maybe tell us a little bit about the early years because you started this work in the 70s is that correct yeah yeah so tell us how you got into this um very accidentally 
Uh, so I moved to Toronto from the States in 1975 to do my PhD in developmental psychology on attachment in infants at uh, the University of Toronto. And I had received my master's degree in clinical psychology in the States. And I knew I wanted to continue working in clinical child psychology as well, but with no particular focus. But before I had moved to Toronto, I had happened to stumble across Richard Green's 1974 book in Chicago called Sexual Identity Conflict in Children and Adolescents. And Children and Adults, Sexual Identity Conflict in Children and Adults. And he looked pretty cool. He had a big black beard at the time. And uh, I was intrigued by his book. But I really had absolutely no idea what I was reading. Although I had done my master's thesis in Chicago on one aspect of normative gender role development in children. Anyways, I came to Toronto and uh, by sheer coincidence, uh, I came across uh, a child psychiatry rounds uh, at the hospital for sick children in Toronto, where a child psychiatrist named Sue Bradley was presenting uh, on Richard Green's book from 1974. And so I went to it. And as it turned out, she had just started a gender identity clinic for children and adolescents at the Clark Institute of Psychiatry in Toronto. And so I met with her and I joined her team and the rest, uh, we might say, is history. Now, how did she start this clinic for children and adolescents? And it really was actually the first formal gender identity program for children and adolescents. Uh, in North America, I mean, Richard Green kind of had a program at UCLA in California, but it wasn't really a systematic clinic. Um, and the reason Sue Bradley started uh, the Child and Adolescent Clinic was that in 1969, uh, the Ontario healthcare program was starting to consider whether or not adults with, as it was called at the time, transsexualism should be reimbursed for uh, what was called sex reassignment surgery back in the day. And they wanted 
a clinic to start evaluating such patients. So an adult psychiatrist at the Clark Institute began a program uh, for adults in 1969. And, you know, by the early 70s, they started to get some referrals of children and adolescents. And one thing we know for sure about adult psychiatrists is they know nothing about children or adolescents. So this woman who started the adult program made a call down to the child program and asked, would anybody like to see these kids? And Sue Bradley said, sure. So that's how it started. So very informal. Yeah, and this is really why we're calling this the Pioneers series. I mean, you and Sue and some of these, like Dr. Green, this is really early uh, uncharted territory, I think, in the field of psychiatry, mental health, adolescent development. Like, at the time, did it feel like you guys were somewhat rogue? Did it feel like all of this was a total mystery? Like, what was it like to start working with a population that there wasn't really much literature on? It was... Also quite taboo, I I would assume. I mean, can you just describe what was the atmosphere like amongst you and these early clinicians? Yeah, well, I mean, over the years, I've occasionally written that people who enter the field of clinical sexology in general, uh, it's always been sort of an outlawed discipline in relationship to mainstream clinical psychology or clinical psychiatry, you know, the average clinician would say, we don't do this kind of stuff. And um, so, uh, yeah, we were considered a little weird, like, you know, why are you doing this and what is it all about? And um, back in the day, I would say the a typical complaint that people would say, oh, this just has to do with variations in, you know, gender role behavior. Uh, because back then, what was very trendy was the concept of non-sexist child rearing or the notion of androgyny and so on and so forth. But it really was simplistic because once you actually started to see children and adolescents, uh, realized the story is way more complicated than that. But um, I think one parameter that was very important back then was that Sue Bradley had uh, done her training in psychiatry at the University of Toronto. She was young. I mean, I'm twice as old now as she was when I first met her. I mean, I was only 24. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, But she was very well respected. And so uh, I think that at the beginning 
allowed people to give us our freedom to explore this. It was mainly her, it was her rotating child psychiatry residents. And there were four or five uh, graduate students in psychology. And we all shared an office and hung out. And the other thing that was interesting at the time, so we're talking mid-70s, the Clark Institute of Psychiatry was established in Canada as the first uh, academic health science center that was specifically devoted to doing research. That's That was its mandate in addition to training and providing patient care. But one of the ironies back then was that almost nobody did research in the clinical programs. And we were one of the first in the child program to actually do systematic research. Um, so from a very from the very beginning we combined clinical care and research questions could, could i ask you about that i've often wondered it because i would have been your candidate when i was a kid because i was you know i had very extreme gender issues and I was born in 1974, but I was in Ireland, obviously. Now, what occurs to me, and it's always occurred to me when, I, when I'm reading your research from back then, was there was no, um, certainly in Ireland in, in 1970s, 1980s, there was just no way any child would be brought to a psychiatrist for something like that. It just wasn't in the culture. And so I always think of these studies saying, well, who are those people bringing those children to those clinics back then, were they incredibly gender-conforming parents? Were they very overprotective, very intense, over-involved parents? Was the actual population who ended up in the clinics, who ended up in the research, a very intense population that could skew the research from back then? It's always been on my mind to ask you that. Well, you know, um, at the beginning... Uh, the number of children and adolescents that were being referred was very small. And for many, many years, uh, as the numbers increased, back then, we saw way more children than we did adolescents. Um, one of the most dramatic changes, apart from the sheer increase in the number of referrals in general, has been the flip to now there are way more referrals of adolescents than children in many clinical settings. Um, but to go back to your question, uh, what led people uh, to make referrals. And I, I think that's a very interesting question because I remember uh, maybe back in the 1980s asking people, for example, from Germany or France, suppose there was a child who had what we now call gender dysphoria, where would they go? And clinicians I know would say, 
they're hidden because there's too much stigma. And so maybe they would go to their family doctor, but the idea of seeing somebody in clinical psychology, social work, psychiatry would be very uh, verboten and too anxiety provoking. Um, we once, I never published this study, but we once did a content analysis of some of our files looking at what led parents to seek out uh, a referral. And I'll see if I can reassociate and try to remember <laughs> what were the main worries. So in no particular order, especially for little boys, uh, concern that they were getting teased for their feminine behavior. So concerns about stigma. So that was one. Uh, a reasonable number of the kids had other mental health issues. So it wasn't just gender dysphoria. Um, some parents uh, knew about the concept of transsexualism, as it was described at the time, and they were worried about that. They didn't want their kid to grow up to be transsexual. And then there were other parents uh, who wondered if the early gender nonconforming, gender variant behavior uh, was prognostic of their kid growing up to be gay or homosexual. And they uh, would be quite candid about saying, we don't want our kid to grow up to be gay or homosexual. And in the very first paper that we published about our clinic in 1978, uh, we noted that that was a worry that parents had, but from ground zero, we made it very clear that changing a child's eventual sexual orientation was not a goal of any therapeutic plan that we were going to propose, and at the same time acknowledging uh, that that was a genuine worry. I can remember one family that I saw accelerating up to the 1990s, very well-educated, talking about their very little kid. And they were very clear that they didn't want their kid to grow up to be gay. And the mother said, I know you can't say this, but would you straighten them out anyways? Um, so anxiety about sexual orientation or becoming trans in adulthood uh, is still an issue that many parents struggle with. At the same time, you know, I think um, there's also a lot of variability 
in attitudes with regard to sexual orientation and gender identity from the very beginning. Um, If we leap forward to 2022, one of the things that gives me a chuckle is when I'm seeing, for example, parents of the contemporary cohort of adolescents, so many parents I see make it very clear that they're progressive, that they're ultra-liberals, that they're not homophobic, um, but when their kid all of a sudden develops gender dysphoria, that kind of crosses a line. And so they would say, you know, why can't my kid just be gay? Which is certainly a shift in, in attitude than we might have heard back in the 70s or 80s and even the early 90s. And has your approach changed considerably since from, let's say, the 1970s to today? Um, With regard to... Working with children. Probably. (laughs) Come on, then. (laughs) Give us a clue. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, that's a really hard question because it isn't like we had um, a clear therapeutic protocol. I can only... I'll try to talk in broad strokes. So, you know, up until the late 90s, I would say that the research focus of our clinic and the clinical focus was way more directed to children because we saw so many more children than adolescents. Um, so, but I'll start with the adolescents. So I would say that among the adolescents that we did see, let's say in the seventies, eighties, nineties, if I had to retrospectively describe what our conceptual perspective was, it really was a developmental one that I think the perspective we had was that for the few adolescents we were seeing, their gender identity slash gender dysphoria was pretty locked in. And keep in mind that in the 70s, 80s, through the mid-1990s, what could an adolescent do in terms of getting help for their gender dysphoria? Some of them may have socially transitioned, as we would call it now, but they certainly did not have access to hormonal suppression or what nowadays is called gender-affirming hormonal treatment, because nobody would even consider that with somebody under the age of 18. Um, So I would say that our approach back then was 
more supportive than anything else, along with working on the other mental health issues that these kids had, because they often had a lot of other mental health issues, whether it was a personality disorder in the making or anxiety or depression, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we would sort of hold on to them until they could be referred to the adult gender identity clinic. And when we first started to think about eligibility for hormones in adolescence, we worked with an adult endocrinologist, not a pediatric endocrinologist, because pediatric endocrinology in the 1990s wouldn't touch these kids because they would say, why would we want to do something to somebody who is somatically normal? Uh, so, I mean, that's a huge change. Um, now, I would say that, you know, with regard to adolescence, one thing that has changed in my own thinking about working with adolescents with gender dysphoria is that because the current population that we're seeing has become so much more heterogeneous than it was back in the day that I think the whole question of is there gender dysphoria fixed and locked in uh, is a question that has to be looked at with a different lens. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to this later, but for example, the new population of adolescents who we're describing as either rapid onset gender dysphoria, aka Lisa Littman, or simply late onset gender dysphoria. We never saw adolescents like that in our clinic until I would say around 2005. And when we started to see these kids who we now might use the label ROGD, we certainly were scratching our heads saying, wow, we never have seen kids like this before where their developmental gender history was pretty typical. And I think that the conceptual lens that we might have used to think about what's going on with these kids might have been the emerging association we were seeing with autism spectrum disorder or these kids having trauma experiences or other major mental health issues. And the idea that for whatever reason, these kids have come to the view that changing their gender would solve all of these other issues. But we didn't have a formal label, which, and I'm glad Lisa Littman 
came up with that term. Um, Because in my current private practice, like over the last four or five years where I've seen close to 550 adolescents over the past four or five years, A, the majority are female, 70%, and the majority fall into the category of rapid onset gender dysphoria. So my point is the current population of adolescents is way more heterogeneous than the adolescents we were seeing back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, where the vast majority had the early onset history of what back then we would have called gender identity disorder. Now we call it gender dysphoria. Right. And and you also mentioned something really interesting. You said around 2005 is when you started to see this adolescent onset dysphoria. And I would presume, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but I would presume that even that 2005 cohort that has perhaps a gender dysphoria that emerged after a trauma or some sort of kind of situational event or as a result of autism, that might be even different from what you're seeing today, which is kids who may have trauma, may have autism, but also have kind of self-groomed on the internet to adopt like a belief system. So I'm wondering if you can comment on whether or not that's a qualitative difference and has treating these kids become different for you? Because I would imagine like if your population now is anything like my population, some of them, not all of them, come in with a certain belief system about what therapy is supposed to look like, what the outcome should be, access to transition services being almost like a human right. So I wonder if that's a little bit different than the 2005 kids, which I would imagine is quite different from the kids with childhood onset. So can you just comment on that? Well, for sure, social media and the internet has had such a profound impact on human life in general that it's almost hard to remember what things were like before the internet. It was getting rolling by. 2005 for sure, but, you know, it's exploded. And the one free association that I'm having to your question is that adolescents, even some children and parents read about gender dysphoria on the internet, and they read the same things we read. And so uh, I often spend a lot of time doing what uh, an old colleague of mine would describe as psychoeducation. So one particular joke I like to make with parents is that the internet is like reading medical textbooks. Half of what you read is wrong. The problem is to try to figure out which half. So I'll give you one example of that. Um, so some parents of adolescents or even children will come in 
and they're really torn about what is the best way to help their kid with gender dysphoria. And they'll say, well, you know, I've read that if I don't support or affirm my kid, 40% kill themselves. Um, now, where does that 40% number come from? Uh, well, we know where it comes from. It comes from this non-random sample of transgender adults in the U.S. that was published in 2015 or 16. Uh, I think it was called the Transgender Discrimination Survey or something like that. It was a non-random sample of adults who responded to ads on Facebook or here, there, or everywhere. And in that particular study, 40% recalled that they had made a suicide attempt. But what's fascinating is that some parents read that to mean that 40% of, ad of, of adolescents, let's say, will kill themselves. Um, so you have to spend a lot of time actually discussing the nature of the sample. And there's a big difference between a completed suicide versus suicidal ideation or self-harm. But these numbers get locked into people and uh, it's very hard to sort of work through the information. Um, now, just to continue, you know, um, I would say that the adolescents I see in terms of where they're at clinically, some come in and they are very clear about the pathway they want to go down in terms of social transition, hormone therapy, surgery. Then I think there are other adolescents who um, are not sure where things are going to go. Um, and they'll come in and talk about being confused about their gender. And they're not sure what's the best thing for them. And then there are other adolescents who are sort of in between those uh, poles. And um, so I think in terms of the, the clinical work, one has to uh, begin by joining the adolescent, you know, where they're at. Um, so again, there's that heterogeneity in terms of not only the clinical presentation, but what is the best way for me to get help with my gender dysphoria? I wonder, could I ask you, um, um, and that what you were saying about the 40 percent, it reminds me of that great proverb, which I often think about in terms of gender, which is a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing, because of all of all proverbs, that's the one that rings through my mind with gender, because it doesn't do to be a little bit knowledgeable about gender. It, it's so complex, you kind of have to go a little bit deeper, as far as I can see. What, what I wanted to ask you, and I wanted uh, listeners to know, um, 
um, I'd like you to blow your own trumpet here a little bit, is basically you are, are very eminent. You were on the DSM, you were on the DSM 3, 4 and 5. I'd love you to tell our listeners what how far you've gone in being the centre of, of a, a kind of an academic who is very much expert in gender issues and then what happened to you in 2015 so that people realise that even the top, even the most well-researched, most eminent, most well-respected, as far as I can see, can get pulled down by, uh, as far as I can see, bad faith actors and activists. Um. Yeah, well, uh, I'll try to make a long story short. Um, First of all, you were, could you tell us where you were at with the DSM? I know you were the chair of the DSM-5. So if you could just first of all tell us how brilliant and well-respected you were before they attacked you. Obviously, you're even more brilliant now, but just to to set the table, as they say. Um, well, when I was very young, I was part of the DSM-3R subcommittee on gender identity disorders. And um, that was my first involvement uh with the DSM and then that was 1987 and DSM four was published in 1994. And I was part of that group as well. Um, and Sue Bradley, the child psychiatrist that I worked with for several decades was the head of the subcommittee. Then I was responsible for, uh, making text revisions to the DSM-4 in 2000. And then um, when the DSM-5 workgroup was constituted in 2008, uh, I was asked to be the chair of the DSM-5 workgroup on sexual and gender identity disorders. So spent five years working on revisions uh, from the DSM-4. And did you work as well on the WPATH standards of care? Um, I was only peripherally involved with the standards of care. I wrote a paper on epidemiology with uh, Anne Lawrence, um, I wasn't okay. asked to be involved, and I don't think I would have wanted to be involved because I was investing myself in the DSM five. Okay. Um, and just in case listeners are not aware of what we mean, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is basically like a psychiatrist, psychologist Bible that has all of the different um, diagnoses and criteria and exclusion criteria. So this is the guide that all clinicians use to determine diagnoses. Just anything else you want to add to that brief explanation, Ken? Well, m- not particularly, um, but you can... If- if you have any specific questions you want to ask me about the DSM, uh, I mean, I mean, one, I guess, issue that I can bring up is that 
you know, this area has always been political. And it's probably more political now than ever. And so uh, when I go back to my own story about the closing of our clinic, uh, certainly politics uh, was not something unfamiliar to me. But with regard, let's say, to the diagnosis of gender dysphoria in DSM-5, um, because such a long period of time had transpired before, between DSM-4 in, in 1994 and DSM-5 in 2013, lots had happened. And once the announcement was made around 2008 that there was going to be a DSM-5, there was certainly a strong contingent of people who wanted the diagnosis of gender identity disorder taken out of the DSM. Um, and it's a very interesting dynamic. So, for example, folks who would fall into the contemporary group of clinicians who would be described as gender-affirming were pretty adamant, by and large, that there should be no diagnosis for children, because they would say, there's nothing wrong with these kids. They're too young to have medical treatment, so we should only have a diagnosis for adolescents and adults so they can have access to medical treatment, not psychological or mental health treatment. Um, and so probably the biggest issue that our subcommittee for DSM-5 had to discuss is, should the diagnosis stay in or out of the DSM-5? And I would say the people on the committee had various views about retaining the diagnosis. Uh, one of them was that it allows access to care. So if you don't have a diagnosis, um, how do people receive health care? And in countries where you have universal health care, if there's no diagnosis, how does care get paid for? Um, now, since the DSM-5 came out in 2013, you know that the Companion International Classification of Diseases, their 11th edition, which I don't think officially has gone live, but it's been approved, They've moved the diagnosis of what we call now gender dysphoria out of the chapter on mental and behavioral disorders into a new chapter called 
conditions related to sexual health. Um, so it's no longer a mental health disorder, but it's a condition. And um, I think that in American psychiatry, there will probably be a push by the people who currently are involved with, let's say, DSM 5.1 to remove the diagnosis of gender dysphoria from the manual and maybe put it in the appendix that is called something like, you know, other problems that may come to clinical attention. And I think it will be a very interesting discussion in terms of how people who have various philosophical perspectives would think about that. Um, one reason we didn't recommend that the diagnosis of gender dysphoria be put into the so-called V-code section is V-codes are not paid for by insurance. Um, so, you know, if you're having a relational problem with your kid and the diagnosis is given as a V-code, that's not covered by insurance. Um, so, what do, uh, so, you know, people can make up diagnoses so they get paid. Um, and I know that there are some clinics in the U.S. when they see children or adolescents with gender dysphoria, um, they don't use the DSM uh, or the old ICD coding for gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder, they use unspecified endocrine disorder, which is essentially, in my view, diagnostic fraud. But the problem is, if you read, well, what is an unspecified endocrine disorder? There's no definition of what that means. But I thought it's kind of creative. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. There's a lot of kind of, it feels like information laundering in the case of money laundering, that seems to happen in this field. I would like you to tell us a little bit, and especially the listeners, for those who don't know, 
Um, what happened to you in 2015? I remember once reading that you, you, you'd you done a day's work and you came out to the car park and two people came up to you and this was the kind of closing of the clinic. Maybe I've got it wrong. I set the scene like a movie. Stella's producing a made-for-TV movie about your life here, Ken, and that's the opening scene. And can I scene. just say that, like, you know, you were <laughs> accused of something and you're about to tell us about it. But when I did the film uh, that I did in 2018 in, in the UK trans kids it's time to talk you know I wanted to include because I knew enough to know that Ken Zucker was well you know center to to gender and in children and we were doing a film about gender and children so therefore and I was told we couldn't because there was an ongoing court case and basically tut tut Stella no 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 he's he's verboten he's he's not allowed and then about three or four weeks before the film came out your case got resolved and I remember I was so annoyed because we because mm. our film was done and I'd been silenced and there was nothing we could do because you, you you know what I mean but anyway if you could tell us about it it would be uh yeah well very... um you know I'll try to make a long story short um so you know it's been over 6 years since uh the clinic was closed so I've had a lot of time obviously to think about it and one lens that I would use in 2022 is that me and the clinic, <clears throat> we were an early target of cancel culture. And to become a successful target of cancel culture you needed a confluence of actors to make it happen. So, um, you know, prior to the clinic being put under review in 2015, after some local activists became very vocal about their dislike of our clinic, particularly with regard to little kids uh, using the trope of us practicing conversion therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there had been a few changes uh, in the clinic and also within the child program in general, which I think interacted to make the local complaints uh, more likely to be acted on. So first of all, the child psychiatrist, Sue Bradley, that I had worked with for many years, had stepped down. Uh, she was getting up there in age. But I was now working with a much younger child psychiatrist. Um, second, our boss, who was the head of the child psychiatry program for many years, had also stepped down from that position. Um, so when the particular criticisms came in at the beginning of 2015, there were a few new administrative heads in the child program. I think if Sue Bradley 
was still in the clinic at the time these local criticisms came in and we still had our administrative boss that we'd had for many years. I actually think the response to those criticisms would have been fuck off. Um, because I was certainly aware of uh, local activist types who would always snipe at our clinic. But at the time, I always basically ignored these people because, number one, no one ever reached out to me or anybody else in the clinic to actually ask, what do you guys actually do? Like, what's your philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think my internal reaction was, why should I reach out to them? If they have complaints, come and see us. Over the years in our clinic, we had probably 200, 250 psychology interns, psychiatry residents coming through the clinic. We would have clinicians and scholars visit the clinic and stay with us for a year. Um, we had many PhDs that came out of the clinic. So I would say I was always welcoming to anybody who wanted to come and do research in the clinic or to observe clinical assessments and so on and so forth. Um, but why should I reach out to people who basically would make ridiculous accusations in the media or on the internet. Um, so I ignored it. Um, but I think with, you know, as I've thought about it over the years, in retrospect, uh, this was an early example of cancel culture. And I would say that the administrators who were involved in uh, sort of wanting to align with the activists were basically cowards. And um, you know, as the process of the external review happened, uh, you know, at one point, we were told that before any final decision was made, we would get a chance to read the external review, um, which became available in December 2015. And uh, as this was going on, uh, you know, that whole year of 2015, I was banned from speaking to the media. As far as I remember, they even told you, you know, not even to go back and get your keys. When they gave you the allegation, they said... No, that's... Yeah. Well, that was the day that... Well, so in December of 2015, I was called into a meeting with somebody and, you know, was presented the review in a notebook. Um, And, you know, I started to go through it and... 
you know, I got to various points where it was very clear that there were things being said that were simply not true. And suppose it's patient allegations that were later retracted, if, as far as I know, but at the time were considered yeah, So true. there was there was one patient who was quoted in the review as saying that I was evaluating him for gender reassignment surgery, which the administrators should have immediately known was not true because that was done in the adult gender identity clinic at the okay. hospital. And as I'm you know, reading, the, the patient alleged that uh, I referred to him as being a, a hairy little vermin, meaning... He had and been very responsive I, yeah. to testosterone. And that's what and I And then I heard. supposedly said, you know, three, two, one, you're approved for surgery. So, you know, I looked up at the administrator and I said, you know, this is ridiculous. Um, but then I was told that we would have no opportunity to make any comments uh, on the review where it might be altered in one way or the other, and it was going to be posted that afternoon on the website of the hospital available to everybody. So I said, well, you know, there's really no point here in talking about this further. Did you think your career was getting ruined at that point? Because we're kind of complacent now because it's some years later, but... I'd imagine it was very, very frightening. During the year that the clinic was being reviewed, you know, maybe in retrospect, we were all naive. I mean, half the time we figured, you know, this is just... So crazy, it's not going to happen. Yeah, we'll be, you know, slapped with some misdemeanors and we'll have to make some changes. Or, you know, this is just a setup. Um. So, you know, basically when I made the comment, you know, there's nothing really to talk about because you're going to be putting this review out to the public with ridiculous comments. And then I was told, you know, well, we're making changes in the program in general and the gender identity clinic isn't going to be part of it and therefore your services are no longer required. Um, and, you know, then, you know, a process, what happens when you're terminated at this hospital is you're made to leave immediately. So, uh, what did you do that day? Were you well, thinking... this admin, this administrative, this administrator from human resources said, we'd be glad to send you home in a taxi and pay for it. And I said, that's nice, but actually my car is in the parking garage and my keys are in my office in my jacket. So he went to my office to get my jacket and keys. 
So that's uh, kind of uh, what you're remembering, maybe, Stella. And that you had been running this clinic for many, many years. You were, you know, you were the center of of kind of um, expertise in this field. It, it yeah. was just so profoundly wrong what happened. And then there came a court case. Well, I I filed three lawsuits. One was against uh, the University of Toronto student newspaper for making libelous comments. And uh, that got settled out of court with an apology and money. I also sued a Toronto newspaper along similar lines. And um, that got settled out of court and attached to the original article was a statement that the legal issue had been resolved so people could read between the lines, meaning they gave him money. And then I sued uh, the hospital and one of uh, the administrators in my program for various things, defamation, wrongful dismissal, et cetera, et cetera. So that got launched in early 2016, and it went through a series of iterations. So there was an early attempt to have a mediated settlement, but the mediator, uh, who was a retired judge, said something to my side like they don't realize how much trouble they're in and like we were too far apart and there was no way and over the years then there was a depositions where some of my ex-bosses got cross-examined for six hours and I was cross-examined for six hours and I I have notebooks of the transcripts are quite enjoyable to read um and but we weren't really making any progress towards settlement and then there was a court date scheduled for early October 2018 and um right at the very end of the summer right before basically the hospital's lawyers were going to have to put the pedal to the metal, so to speak, and get ready for like a serious court case uh, right before a long weekend in August of 2018. They faxed an offer uh, with a significant increase in how much money they were willing to give me. Um, Plus, I had a list of non-financial conditions. So one of the conditions was that the CAMH publicly apologize for the statement that I called a patient a hairy little vermin and that they apologize for other errors in the report and that 
they post the apology on the CAMH website for the same length of time that the report itself had been made available to the public. And I should say the reason they took down the report after about a month and a half was a journalist from the States named Jesse Single did a long couple of pieces about me, including tracking down the patient who allegedly said that I called him a hairy little vermin. And that patient was able to say, after being shown an array of photographs of different clinicians, that it wasn't me. Wow. You know, we we had Mike Bailey on as well. And when we talked to him, a similar theme came up. It's like there are these wild accusations made by some activist. And sometimes with the help of a journalist who takes the story seriously, the truth comes out and the person is vindicated. And this is precisely what happened to you. Um, I just think that's really interesting. And it really also highlights how, like you said, cowardly it was that your institution didn't start with the assumption of having your back or supporting you as the clinician who had been, you know, loyal to their service for so many years. And instead, they took seriously the accusation of basically um, kind of a a random, disturbed, uh, misinformed person who basically lied. Like, that just shows how precarious this particular field is for professionals. Well, you know, I think over the last years, I mean, this has become a pervasive issue in Western intellectual and social life of people being accused of things and things go viral and people get canceled uh, as opposed to having an exchange of ideas. But, you know, in the end, uh, you know, they, the CAMH agreed to my non-financial conditions. At one point, they said that they didn't want to publicly apologize for the hairy little vermin comment because they were concerned it would upset me to revisit that issue. And my lawyer said, I don't think you need to worry about Ken. You could have worried about Ken six years ago. So. Very good. So I wound up getting, uh, you know, about $545,000, plus they paid all of my legal fees, which is unusual, which came to over 175000 But But it, it's brilliant, and I'm so glad you were vindicated. It took three years, and it was kind of, by the sounds of it, a, a long three years out of your life that you'll never get back. That's a good fantasy that it was long, Stella. It was fine. <laughs> Um, You're a toughie, Ken. What I'm talking about, I suppose, is that you you might have been able for it. I think it's a, a, an extraordinary story that somebody as as kind of one would think protected by their work as you could get attacked, could lose their position, 
could need to go to a court case that did, you know, it did get resolved in 2018 at the end of 2018. The whole thing started in 2015. So it was a a three year process. Now, you are a very distinct personality. So you sound like you were certainly very able for it. Um, I don't know who are all those people who weren't, who are all those people in this political field that got attacked and they weren't, they weren't as as able to fight back. They didn't have the equipment to fight back. And where are they now? Do we even know who they are? I'd say there's so many people lost on the battlefield in this particular issue and that we've never actually even heard of. We're seeing the likes of Mike Bailey and Ken Zucker who fought strong back and are still standing. And I would say it's more a, a, a testament to who you are than um, I just think there's a lot of people who got lost. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, that's true. And certainly when I, you know, go to meetings and, you know, bump into old colleagues or, you know, meet new colleagues in hallway conversations, you know, some people will say that they have to be very careful in voicing particular concerns that they might have with regard to a particular client or a particular perspective because they fear for their jobs that uh, if you don't adhere to a particular point of view, uh, you're, you feel your position is at risk. And I think that that is sort of the insidious effect of the virulent, virulent activism that can uh that's affected our field but i mean what's been really interesting to me over the last few years is that people are now pushing back um and taking risks and saying look this is a really complicated field um and we have to be really we have to continue to be thoughtful about what we're doing. I think those voices uh, such as yours are still in the minority, but I think that, um, you know, we're in an era now where, you know, parents, families have a wider array of options. Uh, in terms of seeking out clinicians that they're comfortable working with. And I talk about that particularly when it comes to little kids, which was really my passion back in the day. Um, Nowadays, uh, you know, one of the big sea changes with regard to children is the emergence of kids who are socially transitioned from one gender to another at a very young age, uh, some as young as three. And I'm not saying right now whether that's, quote, right or wrong. 
that's a much more complicated issue. But if you look at the various follow-up studies of little kids uh, who may have had therapy of one type or another, uh, some had no therapy, they might have just been seen for an assessment, but if you look at their long-term gender developmental outcome, the vast majority do not continue to have gender dysphoria. Um, that's just what the data show. But in all of those prior follow-up studies, including two that we did in Toronto, uh, none of the kids had socially transitioned prior to puberty, either parents doing that on their own or at the recommendation of a clinician. Nowadays, you know, there are going to be some clinicians who sort of take the amorphous, watchful waiting approach, other clinicians who might recommend active therapy to explore gender dysphoria. Other clinicians will recommend a social transition, or parents will just do it on their own. All of these approaches, in, in theory, are designed to reduce gender dysphoria, but in different ways. But for kids who are socially transitioned at a young age, their gender dysphoria is going to desist in a very different way than it desisted in the older cases. And my point in all of that is that parents are going to seek out clinicians who share their own worldview, so to speak. So um, I see a lot of families of little kids where they are very uncomfortable with the idea of socially transitioning their three-year-old. They kind of view that as absurd. Whereas there are going to be other parents who may have a strong inclination to want to socially transition their kid. They may not want to see me because that might not be my first line of therapeutics. I would want to explore other options. So the point is that there's more diversity in the clinicians who are out there, and people are going to go down different channels, which is fine. Um, but, you know, that's very different. Now, with the adolescence, one of the things that a lot of parents wrestle with is finding a clinician who's not going to recommend, say, for example, hormonal suppression or gender-affirming hormones after a 20-minute visit. And, you know, one of the other developments that we're seeing, I think it's still a very small number, but there are parents who are petrified that if they don't immediately take a particular perspective, 
that somebody is going to call child protection on them, that you're not quote, affirming your child, therefore this is emotional abuse and we're going to take your kid away from you. Um, so there are legal issues that have crept into the field, um, politics. Uh, there's a very, and I think the consequence of all of that is that it, it terrorizes the average clinician from wanting to work with this population. It re- it really does. Their reaction is, why would I want to, you know, risk my career and work with a population where if I say something that's misinterpreted, somebody's going to accuse me of, quote, conversion therapy, or somebody's going to call child protection on the parents so they just don't want to have anything to do with it and thank you you're you're so right and i'm so glad that you did speak with us because it's been it's it's a kind of a shocking story and um it's a salutary tale and i i often think of how all the other clinicians in the field felt when they saw mike bailey being attacked and then in 2015 when the rise of the adolescents was really starting to kick off they saw ken zucker lose his position and I'm talking about, let's say, clinicians in the Tavistock in London looking at themselves and just like George Orwell said, you know, self-censorship is the biggest threat to us and how they must have just closed down. They would have seen what happened to Ken Zucker in Canada. They knew who Ken Zucker was and they would have, if they had any sense about them, and I have no doubt they did because I've met many of them, they would have absolutely self-censored from then on as a result of, of what happened to you. And it, it frightens me. And now it's moved into the parents who are now self-censoring as effectively, if you follow me, because it's shaping the way they're kind of handling themselves. And there's a, an extraordinary climate of fear. And I'm very glad that you noted uh, a, a change where we're starting to speak out. We're starting to push back against this. And and I want to also just kind of mention here, I mean, what happened to Dr. Bailey and to you is really shocking because of your prominence and your eminence. And like, I'm totally, totally small fries, but I started my practice in 2016 and since have had two formal attacks on my license, which Ken, you and I have talked about. And I think that the moral of the story is you're right that this does create a kind of atmosphere of fear and nervousness. But at the end of the day, all of us who are using developmentally appropriate sound techniques, you know, we have all been in a way either vindicated if there's been some kind of formal attack or like in my case, both of the complaints against my license were dismissed. And yes, it did cost me some money hiring attorneys and it took some time and it was stressful. But even somebody like myself who doesn't have the eminence, the prominence, the research publications to support my work, even I was, at the end of the day, um, left to continue doing this kind of basic psychotherapy with kids. And so I think if anyone is listening and kind of uh, trying to figure out what to make of all this, some of these attacks are really bizarre and absurd. And at the end of the day, I, I do tend to believe that the truth comes out and people who are doing sound clinical work will will be able to continue doing that work in almost all cases. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, there have been some amazing developments over the last number of years. So uh, 
the mother who started fourth wave now uh allowing there to be a forum for people families to be able to give a voice uh to express their you know concerns and i think that you know if we in the current cultural moment that we're in where we are seeing this incredible increase in the number of adolescents, um, there's an even more of an urgency for people to not only provide clinical care, but also to do research. Um, so when Lisa Littmans came out with her paper in 2018, you know, one instinct of the activists was not to just critique the paper, but to attack her, uh, to try to get the paper retracted. I mean, Lisa Littman basically lost her job because of that paper, um, even though her day job was not even in the area of gender dysphoria. But, you know, the attacks can be virulent. Um, there's an evolutionary psychologist at Harvard University named Carol Hooven, who I think you guys have yeah. interviewed. Brilliant. One of the things that she talks about is, you know, how does this happen? And part of her analysis is because senior administrators who should know better basically become cowards because they're afraid that if they don't support the activist criticisms, that it'll jeopardize their own position. So um, they self-silence. And, you know, I mean, when everything happened to me, there was a huge petition that, you know, hundreds of people signed supporting me. And, you know, that was really great. And that was very helpful for my lawyers and launching the lawsuit. But, you know, after the case got settled, I got so many emails from local psychologists and psychiatrists saying how happy they were that I settled, but they had never publicly spoken out oh. and why is that because they know that if you critique the people above you puts your own life life's your own job in jeopardy right and, so and yet there's a million quotes all over the place you know for evil to triumph all you have to do is good men to do nothing it's it's said in about 10 different ways and it's this is this is a perfect example for it, and so it behooves us all to speak up. Well, we really appreciate this conversation. This is part of the reason we're doing this podcast because I think it does resonate with people and hopefully gives people a little bit more courage. So, thank you so much, Doctor Zucker, for coming on and sharing like your years and years of wisdom. So it's been great to have you. You know what they say when you're interviewed on CNN or Fox News. What? 
Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks, folks. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.